trust the movement I negate the chaos Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table Again and again Welcome to Grassroot Ohio Conversations with everyday people Working on important issues Here in Columbus and all around Ohio I'm Carolyn Harding And today I'm talking with three medical workers on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis here in Ohio. We've all been impacted by this deadly pandemic virus, yet these folks are on the front lines, tending, treating, nursing, comforting our most vulnerable in their deepest need. They are facing life and death head on daily. They are our heroes. One of our guests is a traveling nurse. One is an ER tech, one an urgent care medical doctor. Two of our guests are choosing to remain anonymous. Traveling Nurse is a registered nurse based in Central Ohio. She has worked as a travel nurse in a variety of specialties in the hospital setting for the past five years. In January 2020, she started an eight-week contract, then COVID hit, and she's been extending and extending and extending to this day. She's been assigned to three different facilities over the course of the COVID pandemic and has most recently been assigned to a COVID ICU unit in a facility that is undersurged due to the COVID crisis. ER Tech is an emergency department technician in a small, independent, not-for-profit hospital in Southeast Ohio with less than 300 beds. As a tech, she takes vitals, assists nurses by drawing blood, running errands to lab cleaning, stocking, performing EKGs, transporting, and doing compressions on patients. Brad Cotton is an MD, an ER physician for 40 years. He started off as a paramedic in Cleveland, studied nursing at Kent State, and then medical school at Ohio State. He's active in Ohio SPAN, Single Payer Action Network. Welcome to Grassroot Ohio. From today's Democracy Now! headline, the United States has once again shattered records for daily coronavirus cases and deaths, with nearly a quarter million infections reported on Wednesday alone. More than 3,600 Americans died of COVID-19 on Wednesday, by far the worst one-day death toll for any nation since the start of the pandemic. And here in Ohio, in total, we have lost 7,777 people to COVID-19 and we are in the middle of this same surge. Can you tell us what environment you're working in now and what you do on a daily basis? Let's start with you, travel nurse. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's been interesting to see the, the progression of the virus over the course of the pandemic. Um, on the ICU unit where I am, uh, patients are critically ill. Uh, many of them have all of them have compromised respiratory. They're not able to main, maintain their oxygen saturation and breathing at a level that is sustainable without supplemental oxygen. Um, we're really trying to balance uh, the patient's symptoms and the underlying contributors, mostly related to respiratory, heart, and kidney functioning, all which are impacted as adverse reactions to the coronavirus. So we, we spend a lot of time either weaning patients down from higher levels of oxygen, supplemental oxygen, or, you know, in more unfortunate scenarios, um, increasing their oxygen or advancing them 
to higher levels of supplemental oxygen. Monitoring telemetry um, for any heart rhythm changes, monitoring their fluid volume, you know, running multiple labs and keeping up with their um, medications and all of the doctor's orders and trying to collaborate care with the other professionals on the health team. Excellent. How about you, um, Dr. Cotton, Brad? Well, um, first of all, I'm happy to be on here with uh, ER tech and travel nurse. In fact, I was listening to see if I might recognize a travel nurse because I've known a number that have gone into that kind of work. And I'm proud to have started out as an ER tech and a medic on the streets, uh, going to nursing school and on to med school. In my personal situation at work right now, I'm doing urgent care work only, uh, which means that I'm seeing people that have coronavirus that we're testing for, uh, but I actually see them in a relatively safe environment, about as safe as can be. I actually see them outdoors uh, in the parking lot, uh, and I'm sending them for testing, and then we follow up with the testing results. Uh, I mean, to some extent, I must say I feel sort of... um, a survivor guilt, uh, you might call it. I've served uh, many decades in the emergency department, uh, but my professional association, the American College of Emergency Physicians, sent out an email communication in March and again in September warning that some of, we ought to get some of our more at-risk uh, docs off the front line. That would include me. I'm 66 uh, years old, have a pacemaker, uh, although keep working just fine with that, but also a very well controlled diabetes and hypertension, which you know, my professional association is telling me to get off the front line. I'm fortunate that I was able to do so. Uh, but certainly uh, my, my heart, my soul hurts uh, every day at my brothers and sisters that I was advised to report to the rear that are still there on the front lines of this and seeing you know, we get idiotic flyovers and people buying us pizza back in March and April telling us what a great job we're doing. But nobody seems to be willing to actually look at facts, to look at truth about what it takes to protect nurses and healthcare workers. That is, wear a mask, don't visit people at Thanksgiving. We are being thrown into the fire uh, with you know, superficial praises uh, while nobody's willing to do what it takes to protect us. I I just noticed right before signing on here uh, a headline that uh, the feds are cutting back on shipment of the Pfizer uh, vaccine. And Pfizer says they have millions of doses sitting in their warehouse. Our government, our current administration has failed so badly. The proof is we have less than 4% of the world's population, but greater than 20% of the coronavirus deaths. And if this administration was fighting World War II, we would have lost. You know, it's not up to the states. We need a coordinated campaign to get the vaccines out. And now we can't even do that. Um, And a healthcare worker should be thrown into the furnace. Let's go on down to ER Tech. Can you tell us what the environment is like where you are working? Sure. Um, We are seeing um, ebbs and flows. There's some days when we have COVID patients, we have a dedicated area for them, but sometimes that overflows and we have to clean out other rooms, you know, remove the supplies and put them, you know, in other places. Um, So, but we're seeing ebbs and flows, which is nice to give the nurses a break. The COVID unit itself is, it's rough. It's, it's grim. You know, you've got, you're in and out because 
they have nothing done. So they have to have blood work, EKGs, um, urine samples, you know, you name it, plus all the medications and breathing treatments and x-rays and CTs. So it, it's a lot of work. And sometimes there's not the staffing over there just because of the ebb and flow and, you know, metrics of an emergency department. And that makes it extra hard, especially when it's full and you've got critical patients. But we see it. We get a lot of surprises these days. We're getting, you know, people because the symptoms mimic, you know, other conditions. We might, you know, think we have someone with chronic COPD exacerbation or congestive heart failure. And guess what? We find out, oops, they have COVID and, you know, we weren't isolating. We all wear masks, but, you know, we don't necessarily isolate every single person in the ear because it's impossible. Um, You know, we might get someone in with an accident and oops, find out later they had COVID. We get a lot of surprises and not fun surprises. And then we get a lot of people walking in that are worried about their symptoms and they may not be as severe yet, but I've seen us send people home, you know, uh, with home O2 and they come back in and they're crashing. So the same day. So that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. Let's go on from with that, with the crashing. Um, what are you finding travel nurse with, during this surge? Are you, are you at capacity? Is there still room in your unit? And um, what does it mean by crashing? So we've opened up three additional units um, to receive COVID patients. We are at max capacity. We have no space. Um, we oftentimes are trying, doing everything we can to wean patients off of higher levels of supplemental oxygen um, and critical care that they have to be on the ICU unit for um, in order to make room for people who are on a medical unit or on a non-ICU unit that really need an ICU bed. Um, And every day we're gridlocked. I mean, there's nowhere to go. What it means to crash is the point at which a patient either goes into respiratory or cardiac arrest. There has been twice in the past two weeks uh, when we've had three codes within a 20 minute time frame. What that means is that someone has gone into um, a rapid response respiratory or cardiac arrest, it needs immediate response from the rapid response team. So when you have three codes within 20 minutes and you have one rapid response team, there are unfortunately some very difficult decisions that have to be made with regard to triage and you know how we're prioritizing which of these patients is the most critical patient, how can we be three places all at once. Um, with COVID patients, we're seeing that crash happened pretty rapidly. Um, The progression is that the patients will come in needing oxygen through a a simple nasal cannula. And once they have maxed out the settings there, we step them up to a high flow oxygen and from there a BiPAP. And once they've maxed out those settings on the BiPAP machine, um, they are in need of intubation. And so that often happens, the, the, the crash is the point at which we can no longer sustain them on um, our highest level of non-invasive um, oxygen intervention, and they have to be intubated, which, you know, is the literature supports in which we know in, in, in the data that's been put out, um, you know, it's, it's very hard to recover from ventilated status. I see. So 
what are we finding is helpful? Is it the prednisone? I've heard they started using prednisone and it's really helped get people out of crisis faster. What have you guys found is working to help? Yeah, so the regimen is um, prednisone or dexamethasone, um, you know, some patients who with whom it's not counterindicated um, may have remdesivir, sometimes also coupled with a diuretic, which is a medication that pulls excess fluid off of the body because these patients are presenting with pneumonia, fluid in the lungs. And so, you know, the, the challenge is that every body is different. Um, and, and everybody will respond to the treatment, you know, as their body will. And it's been really frustrating on our end because we are doing everything we can, you know, with the treatments that are accessible to us. Um, and it's, it's very discouraging to, you know, having implemented all of those treatments really kind of be tapped out in terms of what more we can do for patients. So it's, it's, it's really much to do about their respiratory status and trying to get ahead of that, trying to identify if they have something that's viral going on or bacterial, which could be treated with antibiotics, um, or you know, what the cascading effect of the coronavirus is. I see. This is Grassroot Ohio, and I'm Carolyn Harding. And today I'm talking with three medical professionals dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. We have ER tech, we have a travel nurse, and we have an MD. I have a question for all three of you. What part of your work is the most gratifying? And conversely, what is the most difficult? Let's start with you, ER tech. Um... I think the happiest, I mean, the most gratifying is, is just, you know, helping people. And I would say that the most difficult, and and I know it sounds selfish, but it's just never knowing who the next, you know, where it is, you know, in, in, in my environment, where the, where the virus is, who's got it. And, and, you know, I, I have vulnerable family members that I really don't want to give it to. So I, I mean, that that's the most frightening for me, but it's also frightening to see, be helpless because I, I you know, I have no way of changing and the situation. And I see sometimes mm. our units are full and we have to send people hours away, away from their family to a hospital that no one knows anything about. And, and that's terrifying. And, you know, so I, when I see that our unit, our COVID units are full and we have to send people out and the lack of control over anything is really, really frightening. Yeah. It's the novel virus. Everything is unknown. I mean, we, we, we know some, I mean, the general public knows very little, but U.S. medical folks know some. How about you, um, Dr. Cotton? What have, what's been the most gratifying in your perspective from where you're at in this fight and what has been the most difficult for you? I guess starting off with what is most difficult, and as I said, is the fact that, uh, you know, I've left my compatriots, my brothers and sisters on the field still battling this. Um, I understand it was necessary that I report to the rear, so to speak, with health issues, still responsibilities, you know, raising grandchildren. I didn't have a right to risk taking their uh, father essentially away from them. So that is the most difficult for it is knowing that my, my people that I've worked alongside for 40 years 
when you work in the ER, it's a, it's a special place. Um, we see things, we see aspects of life and the world that, that other people don't see. I remember having a patient uh, one time, for example, he was had been a Columbus uh, police officer and uh, was now an Episcopal priest, which is certainly a transition you understand. Uh, so, you know, we see the working alongside each other in the ER, we see life unfiltered and upfront and I miss uh, still being in that environment uh, and being in a feeling that we're doing essential, important work every day. Uh, but it was important that I do so. Um, that's the most difficult about it. In fact, if I, went, if I can get vaccines, I want to be back in there helping out. Um, the most gratifying is, I guess, uh, like I said, I'm not directly dealing face to face with truly sick uh, coronavirus patients. So. But what is what? What have you been able to do in your position? To We're able to uh, send people so they can get testing uh, and at least you know find out if they, they have the illness or so forth. Although there's a lot of technical aspects of testing that need to be understood. Um, and that is one can come down with or be exposed to coronavirus on a Monday, so to speak. Or in fact, I'll put this example uh, as we're coming up on the Christmas uh, travel season, uh, one can be exposed to and develop coronavirus and maybe not even develop symptoms, but you, on, say, the 20th or 21st, and you may not develop symptoms at all. You may not even be aware that you're sick. A lot of people will come get tested, uh, not realizing that it may take anywhere from four, five, six, seven days after you contract coronavirus before the test even becomes positive. So it's important for the public to understand that going and getting tested somewhere, say on the 20th and 21st, does not clear you to visit family on the 25th uh, and spread the virus. It takes a while for this test to turn positive. you saying four or five days? Yeah, the literature supports the idea it can take anywhere from four to five days from the time of your exposure from the time the virus started replicating and growing within your respiratory tract uh, before the testing even becomes positive. So again, it's not a good technique and I urge everybody out there as does Dr. Fauci, don't rely on testing to say that you're safe, that you can go visit people at Christmas. So said, you could have come down with the virus on the 20th before Christmas, not even have any symptoms. The test might not even turn positive till five, six days later. And meanwhile, you're spreading coronavirus all that time and you will test negative. There is a delay in developing of a, of a test positive situation. That's huge, Dr. Cotton, because I have a 23-year-old son in California and, you know, he gets tested. But and I've been tested, too. And um, I've, I have visited my 92-year-old parents and I wore a, a face mask the whole time. But I had no idea that it took that long, it could be incubating that long. And I guess that's good advice for everyone listening. Don't think that you take a test th that you're fine unless you've taken some time between. Let's go on to um, travel nurse. I'd like to know what, what has been the most gratifying for you in yeah. your work and what has been the most difficult for you? Oh, I'll start with the most difficult. Um, and I would echo some of um, Dr. Cotton's sentiments about, you know, being on the front line. Um, as you mentioned, 
Carolyn at the beginning of the show, I signed on in January of 2020 for an eight week contract. Um, and I extended and I extended and I extended and I picked up another contract and I extended and I extended. And there was a part of me that felt um, a duty and there was a part of me that felt guilty about not um, stepping in to help where I could. That said, there's the whole analogy of put your own mask on first, right? Um, there was a, a short period over the summer where I stepped back to sort of, um, you know, for reprieve and to reground um, because I was not conditioned for a long haul. I typically do just a couple of contracts a year. And so coming back in now and just seeing the dire need and just seeing the surge and really the state of disaster that is evident um, at the hospital level. You know, there's a part of you as someone who's taken an oath, you know, to your vocation to, to, to serve um, and, and do the best you can to be a comrade. But what I would like to share, Dr. Cotton, is that your role is so important um, because what I know is that by the time patients come to my unit, it is a steep uphill battle. Um, it is in the urgent care, it is in the community facilities. It is, you know, those more first line of defenses, early recognition and early diagnosis that is important. And of course, prevention is, you know, the best thing that we can all do. But the point at which someone has been exposed, has been diagnosed, um, you know, getting them early treatment is the best case scenario for them. So I appreciate that you are serving within your capacity um, and, and contribute contributing to um, our overall efforts. Um, on the hospital unit or in the ICU, the challenges are um, the shifts are very long. Um, most of my shifts are, you know, between 13 and 14 hours in full PPE with the respirator which weighs about 10 pounds um, and a power pack that is worn on a belt on the hips. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're in that for 14 hours and you're trying to chart in your computer and you have that extra weight on your neck and you're in a hot, you know, full suit gown. And as ER tech mentioned earlier, being hyper aware, you know, of contagions all around and just having to be extra diligent and mindful about what you touch, the order in which you touch things, how you're sanitizing things, what a patient's contagious status is, how to move about safely in their space and how to keep them safe in their space. Um, another challenge has been that we have also become the surrogate family for these patients. Um, on the IC unit, you're not allowed visitors, the exception being end of life situations. And it's a, it's a really difficult thing to have to suit up a family in PPE to say their last pieces, you know, to, to their family members. So those things are challenging. You know, one of the things that um, has been principled to me um, on every shift that I would leave on my travel assignments, I would ask myself, you know, did I do everything I could today? And one of the challenges has been leaving the hospital, um, knowing that I did everything that I could and that that everything just isn't enough. That there's just, you know, we 
do not have the personnel resources, we do not have the capacity to sustain the volume of patients that are coming in. So that is challenging. Um, what is rewarding to me, what is rewarding to me is, um, you know, the gratitude that families have that we are there and that we are doing the best that we can for their family members. And what is most ultimately gratifying is being able to step those patients down and seeing them heal and seeing them get better and seeing them, you know, go home from the COVID unit. Um, and so that's what we're all here for. One more last question. If you were to give advice to our listeners, what is your advice? Um, let's go with you, ER Tech, first. Just, I know it's hard, but just stay home. You can have another Christmas. You know, once we're all vaccinated, we can have extra Christmas. We can have extra Thanksgiving. Um, someone I know, her little girls thought that they killed their grandmother because they'd been around her and they all had the vi- and they got the virus and then she died. And that's excruciating for little girls to have to think. And so don't don't get in that situation. Thank you. How about you, Dr. Cotton? I would uh, echo uh, ER tech in that uh, I've been working in emergency departments or on the street as a medic for 40 years. I've missed many, many a holiday or or work the night shift before it and just might as well miss the holiday trying to stay awake and be there. We we all have missed a lot of holidays. And as as healthcare workers, we ask that the public support us by listening to the science, paying attention to what the experts say, wear a mask, social distance, do not visit at Christmas, and help us as a healthcare workers on the front lines and listening to a uh, travel nurse. I, I am grateful to her for the work that she does. Support her, support ER tech, support all of us and pay attention to the scientists, wear masks, do not visit, uh, social distance, and please help control this virus. Thank you. And you travel nurse real quick. Sure. I would echo ER tech and Dr. Brad's comments. Um, and just staying safe, doing the best you can to keep yourself and others safe. And I know that it's been challenging. We're social creatures. We miss being, you know, engaging in that social capacity, but we really have to get through this. I would also caution with respect to the vaccine that's coming around. We still need to be diligent in maintaining those recommendations. All right. That's it for our show. I want to thank you all three. Thank you. Thank you. In addition to our Friday 5 p.m. broadcast on WGRN.org, Grassroot Ohio will now air on Sundays at 2 p.m. at WCRSFM.org and also at 4 p.m. at WEJPLP in Wheeling, Moundsville, West Virginia. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Grassroot Ohio, 94.1 FM, WGRN.org. We air Friday nights at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can listen to all our previous shows archived on the top post of our Grassroot Ohio Facebook page. There's a time to listen and learn, a time to organize and strategize, and a time to stand up, fight back. I'm down, I'm down.